and welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the very busy intersection where faith and reason meet, intersect, and sometimes collide. I'm Doug Keck here, the gatekeeper from the mothership located in Irondale, Alabama. And of course, where Mother Angelica began it all back in 1981. And of course, your questions are what drives this program, so send them on a regular basis anytime to SpitzersUniversityWTN.com. And of course, as always, we talk about Father's wonderful websites, themagiscenter.com, Purposeful Universe, and SpitzerCenter.org as well. And the program you're watching is always featured on our YouTube channel and on our EWTN On Demand page. If you happen to miss any of it or want to recommend it to somebody, you want to go back over one of uh, Father's very in-depth explanations of the topic, <laughs> and you can also check out our wonderful children's programs that populated as well. And you'll have fun learning with your kids. Uh, with, we've got Tompkin, the Friar, Roman Catholic, top quality children's programs. Always there on demand and for free. Did I mention they're free? And also just wanted to mention that today's show is a special edition where we get notified by the IS department that in fact there's too many emails sitting on our server and we have to start answering some more questions. So this entire program is going to be answering <laughs> those email questions you've sent to us. And with that, we're going to turn to our own Mr. Universe, the one and only Father Robert Spitzer out on the West Coast. And I hope you're prepared for this onslaught of questions, Father. Uh, okay, yes, I am. <laughs> I, uh, I look forward to it. <laughs> okay, great. I can't imagine. Well, you better start praying right now, <laughs> so let's start. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <clears throat> In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us. The blessing especially of this program, our ministry, uh, and our ability to serve in it. Send your Holy Spirit down upon Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray Amen. for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. So uh, we are going to get into uh, our mailbag, so to speak, here. Uh, first up, dear Father Spitzer, my wife and I have been married for 28 years. For most of our marriage, we were in a similar place in our faith journey. However, the past couple of years, I feel like I'm advancing more and leaving her behind. How should I handle this? Vince. Well, uh, Vince, the first thing is, is uh, uh, don't let it be a problem if it's not a problem. So in other words, if she's okay, uh, with you kind of moving ahead and doing whatever it is you might be doing, maybe going to Mass more often or right. going to confession more often or involving yourself in adoration or prayer more often or something of that nature. Uh, if you uh, are involved in such, if she doesn't think it's a problem, uh, you know, if it ain't broke, don't mm -hmm. fix it. So that's my, my first thought. Right. Uh, the second thought is if you do notice uh, that there is some sort of resentment or discouragement or something mm -hmm. that might be going on on her part, uh, I would absolutely ask. I would get into a dialogue and just say, is everything okay? Or, uh, you know, do you find my, um, you know, additional um, uh, practices or my additional 
um, reading in these, these areas? Do you find that to be a problem? Or how can I help to accommodate mm -hmm. it? So, um, you know, if, the, if there is something there, there's some discouragement or there's some resentment, uh, I would definitely communicate, 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 right. uh, because I think that's the main way to uh, to approach it. And you, you know, generally, you know, if you're doing something like, you know, praying more often, that's actually going to strengthen the marriage. Yeah. Uh, as I've always said, there's that old reciprocal relationship between religion and and marriage. The stronger the religious commitment is, and uh, you know, e either party and both parties, uh, you know, the, the stronger the marriage becomes, the stronger the marriage becomes, uh, the stronger the religious commitment becomes. So you might want to encourage her, right. you know, to follow, but don't demand it. Uh, right. Just let her follow at her pace, and eventually, you know, she's going to see your peace of mind uh, is going to increase. She's going to uh, see uh, that you have a, a sense of salvation, a sense of hope, uh, you know, that's going to really affect your, mm -hmm. uh, not only your emotional stability and peace, uh, but it's actually going to affect right. your um, your spiritual life, your confidence, the theological virtues, your sense of love and, and intimacy with right. her. And I think she, that may encourage her to follow you. Right. And uh, so uh, uh, it's not nothing to worry about, but don't make it a problem right. if it's not a problem. Continue with what you're doing. She'll probably follow you. Right, and make sure you're not acting as if you're advancing in your faith and she should be catching up with you yeah. or that somehow you become yeah. holier oh, yeah. in your old age. You know, that could certainly yeah. lead to yeah. certain levels of resentment yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. in, in any relationship. Yeah. So, yeah. So. Don't grab the moral high ground. Right, Absolutely. Exactly. Next up, dear yeah. Father Spitzer, is it a sin to not attend my mother's funeral? There's been a lifetime of abuse and rejection, and I would prefer not to open all wounds in the event of her passing. Susan. So she doesn't want to attend her mother's funeral? She doesn't want to attend because of, uh, you know, she's had a history of abuse. Yeah. She's afraid if she goes yeah. to that, it's going to open old wounds. Is that a sin because she's yeah. decided not to do that? No, I, I would say, you know, it's not a sin, certainly no. not. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you don't have to attend anybody's funeral. But on the other hand, uh, just for the sake of reconciliation, um, you know, even though it may be a real emotional inconvenience, right? Mm -hmm. it, you may find this to be uh, uh, really demanding of mm -hmm. yourself as well as uh, of others. You may, uh, you know, want to overcome that and see if you can, you know, just by your presence, uh, introduce a little rapprochement right. If people get resent, resentful that you're there, or you get, you know, um, uh, you know, old things just flare up in your heart, right. you know, uh, just uh, push it down. You know, a funeral, hour and a half later, right. you know, maybe after the reception, uh, you can just peacefully take off and then go to sleep for a half an hour. Right. But uh, the point is, you know, I think it's always good uh, to to go if you can without. Right really doing distress to yourself. I, I would go, it, it, normally some rapprochement uh, might be possible, and, and if it is, uh, that's worth getting. Right. Um, so um, I'd right. probably go ahead and try, but no, it's not a sin for right. you and, not and, to go. And by doing the right yeah. thing in that way, you'll always know that you did the right thing. And it'll never put you in a position yeah, later exactly. when you somehow decided that I can't believe I didn't go. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Because so many times exactly. I've seen, uh, you see it on social media a lot and stuff like that, but you can clearly see, especially with daughters and their mothers, 
how much the mother and daughter relationship and how much the daughters miss their mother when their mother has passed on. Oh. Even people who seemed it's at so the time true. when you were growing up maybe didn't seem like they had the best relationship. That's right. There's, you know, so. There is so much going on there. Uh, you know, Phil's encyclopedias from uh, Freud to the contemporary mm -hmm. moment. So, you know, you know just, just on the psychological level, but also on the right. spiritual level as well. So right. you're right, it's always right. worth it uh, right. uh, to, to, to go if you can. Right, and also uh, there is one funeral we all have to attend, that is our own, as you're fully aware. So yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. whether we'd like to be there or not. Next up, <laughs> no, not. Dear, dear Father Spitzer, why did it take 30 to 80 years after Jesus was crucified for the Gospels to be written? Why weren't they written sooner, Brian? Well, Brian, it actually goes through a whole series of stages. And um, I'm going to give you the theory, uh, that, which is, I think, a very solid and validated theory of Richard Bauckham. Uh He wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Uh, I think that's in Erdman's book, mm -hmm. uh, which, um, uh, you know, you can get. But anyway, what Bauckham proposes is the following. Uh, so you have your first set of witnesses. Now remember, there is a sense of urgency in the church uh, initially, right? So, so they're thinking maybe the, you know, the end of the world is going to happen. Jesus' resurrection has occurred, and there was a belief that you know, at the, the moment of the resurrection, and remember, Jesus, he's risen in glory. So they're already thinking, oh my gosh, the parousia is on top of us. We've got to get going here. Nobody's thinking about writing. They're thinking about preaching and getting the word out. So who are the initial uh, witnesses, the big uh, witnesses? Well, the first one, we know, um, and Bauckham has made a brilliant case for this. Peter is the major eyewitness of Mark's gospel. And that is, of course, the first gospel to be written. But prior to that gospel being written, right, you have, um, uh, you know, Peter going out and he's preaching everywhere in the whole Jerusalem area, all the way up to Caesarea Philippi, right? Uh, Peter is out on the road and Mark is kind of his uh, translator, right? So Peter's really got an Aramaic, uh, thick kind of Galilean um, uh, Aramaic uh, accent. Uh, Mark is doing his translating uh, into Greek for Greek audiences and into uh, Hebrew where there needs to be some formal Hebrew. And, and Mark is a very well-educated uh, person and you can tell how well-educated he was because remember in the Acts of the Apostles when Peter gets freed from the jail, where does he go? He goes to John Mark's house, um, uh, mother's house, and of course you can see that that is a very nice house, right? All the, the front gates and so forth and so on. This is a well-educated diaspora uh, Jewish family, mm -hmm. and so Mark becomes his, uh, his basic translator. But Mark is not just sitting by idly and translating. He's taking all this stuff down and doing what? Translating it into Greek and making his first text. Now, says Bauckham, the second thing that's going on is you've got uh, the um, uh, disciples that are collected together in Jerusalem, and that's called the Jerusalem Church. And these um, uh, initially 11 disciples, but, uh, you know, it's uh, apostles, they're going to get kind of whittled down to about eight. 
But the main point is, is because you know some of them are already going into Gentile lands and so forth, but that becomes the central Jerusalem church. And so we think that the Q source, there's all these sayings in what we call the Q source. Where did the Q source come from? Very likely it comes from those apostles in the central Jerusalem church. Mm -hmm. Now that's one role that they play is they probably are generating this huge body of sayings of Jesus. And of course, they're validating each other. Mm -hmm. But they're playing a secondary role, says um, Abakam, because the Christian church was not just go and preach as you will. Mm -hmm. They had a very formal structure that, um, that Bakum and his collaborators, uh, uh, you know, uh, go into, you know, that, that uh, how the structure worked and the reason that the, there's these apostolic lists in the Gospels, etc. But the main thing to remember is they're doing the checking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when people are going to go out and they're going to be a preacher, who's going to be the one that says, you're a valid preacher, you can go out with our blessing? A preacher who tries to go out without the blessing of the apostolic church in Jerusalem, that person is going nowhere, right? So even, you know, in the most local uh, rural communities, right, the, you don't have the blessing of the, the apostles. You're, you're not going to be an official preacher, and you're not going to get listened to. But so, so the, the Jerusalem church had a very good, you know, the apostles in the Jerusalem church, they really did have... Um, you know, a, a script, if I can put it that way. And in, in the uh, initial stages, you had to commit much of this to memory. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we would call this, you know, a formal, you know, uh, you know, memorization. So you have a whole set of disciples that are the initial preachers besides the apostles who go out and they tell these, uh, you know, stories about what's happening. But that script that they're telling has been approved by the apostles. You can't go out and just talk about whatever you want. Mm -hmm. The idea of the form critics that you have this haphazard kind of layering of things and uh, all kinds of changes were made, you know, intermittently without mm -hmm. the checking of the Jerusalem church. That is a bogus theory that honestly mm -hmm. um, have, you know, really Bacham and, and his collaborators have put to rest um, you know, pretty much for all time now. So the idea, you know, you can use form critical uh, methods for the Old Testament where you have great spans of time. Mm -hmm. But basically, you know, Jesus, you know, is, is risen in, in 33 AD and you're going to get your first gospel in 60 AD uh, with Mark and shortly thereafter uh, with the first versions of Matthew. Hey, wait a second here. You know, this is like... You know, uh, uh, a, a thir not even a 30-year mm -hmm. uh, uh, difference, right? You've got a 25-year span. Well, you don't have to talk about not having any control. I mean, the apostolic church had plenty of control over a 25-year span, and you can tell by the similarity of statements uh, in, in the in the Gospels and between uh, you know the various sources. You can tell that, that uh, this is pretty strictly controlled by the Jerusalem church. So that's right. the second big thing. The third thing that Richard Bacham talks about is what is, um, you know, a technique that was used by Papias, who was an early church historian. But the main thing is, is when you see characters that are in the uh, specific narratives, 
those are generally the, um, they're, they're like a central character, like Nicodemus or, um, you know, the women in the, uh, um, you know, the, the, you know at, the, at the crucifixion scenes, mm -hmm. etc. When you see these witnesses who are listed by name, like Simon of Cyrene and things of that nature, that is tantamount to saying this is the primary witness. Mm -hmm. And those primary witnesses, of course, have been checked um, and their traditions have been overseen mm -hmm. by the apostles. The apostles are, uh, you know, the, the subscripted witnesses, but the primary witnesses are oftentimes named yeah. in the actual his, uh, gospel accounts inside the narrative. So he makes an excellent case uh, for this again in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. So when you start looking at this, you've got basically from the time of Jesus' resurrection, about 33 A.D., uh, to about 50 A.D., you have got these apostles, they're running hard, mm -hmm. right? And they're commissioning these disciples. They're training these disciples in the traditions, et cetera, et cetera. And they're bringing these things out in uh, preaching mode to um, the surrounding areas. Mm -hmm. Now, says Bakum, you get to about oh, 45 to 50 AD, and people go, hey, wait a minute. The, the parousia hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. you, know, well, um, you, know, uh, you know, it's true, Jesus is risen in glory, but it wasn't what we thought, you know, that there'd be like, you know, the end of the world. So, what do you have to do? People started saying, hey, all these oral traditions that we have commissioned and we have been overseeing, you know, in this uh, formal traditional uh, expression, we got to start committing these things to writing. Mm -hmm. So, of course, um, they say, hey, Mark, uh, you're good in, in, in Greek and uh, Aramaic and Hebrew. Uh, you've been listening to Peter over the last 15, 20 years. Can you get this stuff into writing? Mark has got it. So, of course, Mark starts his gospel using, you know, the messianic secret as the major theme. Mm -hmm. But you notice that, that Mark basically has 15 chapters instead of, you know, 27, 28 chapters uh, as we have in the other gospels. In the meantime, then the Q source is being committed to writing probably by the Jerusalem church, mm -hmm. right? Um, they're, they're, uh, the apostles in the Jerusalem church are basically collecting these sayings, committing them to writing in one big, huge uh, source called the, uh, called the Q source because there's no name attributed to them. But basically those apostolic lists, mm -hmm. those are like seals of approval of the sayings of Jesus that are in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. So um, that kind of tells you who's the source uh, you know, because they're not just listing the disciples for nothing. It's like a, a list of people who've had approbation of the tradition. So you keep going, and then all of a sudden you've got these collections. Mm -hmm. Now Mark weaves it, in, you know, into a narrative, and so we have two um, uh, uh, people, Matthew and and Luke, uh, and there Matthew is clearly a um, probably a scribe who writes very good Greek. The original Matthew that is there who probably had a series of Aramaic writings and things mm -hmm. and his order, that Matthew Aramaic, we, you know, he's disappeared off the scene because Matthew Greek, uh, the Greek author, uh, who obviously probably was a Jewish scribe, 
um, you know, he kind of overlays Matthew uh, Aramaic. Mm -hmm. Now, the point for Bacham is, is that when uh, he gets going, his audience are these Jewish people. And what does he want to do? He wants to bring more Jewish scribes, etc., into the church. So his basic, basic thought is, okay, how can I, um, you know, uh, attract them? Well, I got to show that Christians respect the law. So that's going to become a big theme of his. Mm -hmm. He's going to also say church structure is a big deal. If we don't have a central authoritative structure founded on Peter, which who is the selection of Jesus himself, then, you know, we're going to have a very, very weakened church going forward. So that's another one of his themes. Whereas Luke, Luke's, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, probably a Syrian Jew, but he's living with who? The Hellenists on the, uh, you know, he's got a big, huge Greek community, mm -hmm. and, you know, he's interacting with them. He's got different issues. So who, what does he talk about? Well, he's very into the Holy Spirit, we know that. And because he's into the Holy Spirit, he also puts in the parts about the evil spirit that's more accented, as well as the parts about the Holy Spirit. But then he's very interested in women. Mm -hmm. And so we see that Luke adds the whole area of women. Uh, he's also very, or is, you know, Matthew is more legalistic. Uh, Ma uh, Luke uh, comes out with the compassion of Jesus, right? He's gonna emphasize that theme uh, as well, mm -hmm. uh, because of course his own audience has not exactly lived what we might call a legalistically perfect life in a Jewish sense, as Matthew's audience may have. Um, he, you know, he, they, they've got a long ways to go. So Luke is going to put that light on those attributes of Jesus, etc. John is a completely different tradition, and that would take me too long right. to get to. But by the time we get to 60 AD and Mark, then you can see that the Q source and the special sources of, Mar of Matthew and Luke, mm -hmm. they're going to be around. And you can see how Matthew, Greek, and Luke, they're going to gather all these sources together, which have always been checked by the Jerusalem church. And of course, with, right. um, with um, Mark, Peter is the main source. So you, you, you right. can see how very carefully it comes together around those narratives. So by the time you get to 70, 75, and 80, um, you know, with the completion of Luke, right. um, you know, you can see why it took as long as it did. But you got to start off by assuming that you have 20 years of just right. racing down the course to preach right. everywhere and to get the, the message out. And that emphasized the oral tradition. And after that, you have a layering of the, and combining, really, of all the written traditions right. that came from the oral traditions. Right. So it's and a very solid historical basis. Right, and in that yeah. culture, the idea of memorizing large amounts of text, oh, yeah. you know, from scripture was the way people learned, right? So they were used to Oh, that. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and not only that, they picked their teachers well. You know, so they just didn't say, hey, anybody can do this. They wanted people who could actually commit these things to memory. Mm -hmm. And that was a very typical rabbinical technique, mm -hmm. right? You, you don't take somebody in who can't remember things right. uh, in a straight way. Or, you know, does, you know, of course they gave certain latitude, you know, for Peter, for mm -hmm. example, to go out and, you know, change, you know, 
his, the way he to tells this story, if he has a pagan audience or if he has a Jewish audience or whatever, he can obviously have latitude to shift the accent of his story. But basically, the Christian church was very careful right. about the details. They wanted to make sure that everything was linked back to an eyewitness and that it was consistent with the eyewitness's testimony. So you can see this all throughout. If you really want a good book, as I said, Jesus and the Eyewitness. Okay. Uh, he, uh, Richard Bachman, senior scholar at Cambridge University, ain't no dummy. And so I'd say he's a real good source right. uh, to take a look at. Okay. Uh, another question for us as we're coming up uh, about four minutes or so from uh, maybe five minutes from the break. Uh, mm -hmm. Dear Father Spitzer, yeah, I wanted sorry. to start off by saying how grateful I am for you and Doug and everyone at EWTN and that I'm always praying for all of you. All of us here at EWTN appreciate that. I'm always fascinated by the secular studies that you mentioned that back up the church's position, particularly on pornography, transgenderism, sexual ethics in general. I like to have access to these studies in order to make proper arguments for the church's position, but I don't know where to find yeah. them. Where's the best place, in your opinion, to find good unbiased studies, particularly on the internet. Gee, I wonder where I'd send them. Any ideas? Well, I, I hate to do some <laughs> shameless advertising, but uh, uh, I would say I, I would purchase my book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. There you go. Uh, and in that book, I really do, I have 40 pages of bibliography, most of which are studies. Uh, so um, honestly, all the studies are there. Everything is footnoted. Uh, all you have to do, if you just type in the, you know, the first words of the URL that's cited in those studies. So you want an internet studies. So I give the URLs for those studies. If you just type in the first part of those URLs, normally it will fill in the rest and you should get a pretty good search result okay. um, in, a, in a hurry. And you can tell um, right away because uh, I list the author and everything, so you can you can see whether you've got the right one or not. Okay, so it's great. real easy to get a hold of. I have a few ones that are like um, from the Archives of General Psychiatry, uh, where you actually would have to go and get the articles. But by and large, most of them are available on the internet. Right. That's the moral wisdom of the Catholic Church. Shameless advertising from Father Spitzer. That's right. Very good. <laughs> Next up, another question, uh, dear Father Spitzer. I'm currently a seminarian studying for the priesthood. At times I get discouraged because I know being a priest can be very challenging. Any words of advice for the trials I will face as a priest? This is Henry. Well, Henry, I've got two pieces of advice. Uh, you know, the first uh, you know, piece of advice is prayer is really essential. For me, you know, kind of the antidote uh, to uh, to, you know, you know, discouragement, and you know, there's always going to be times of discouragement. Some person going to read the riot act to you. Some person's going to uh, get upset and bust your chops and say, <laughs> "I, you know, get out of my face," or "I don't want you determining the curriculum in my school," or whatever. And mm -hmm. so you're going to have these what we call the bad days. Prayer has just always been my help. And I've got these little spontaneous prayers that I use, you know, when sort of suffering strikes. So if you go to um, uh, majacenter.com 
and just go to the free um, resources and then from the free resources go to the free articles mm -hmm. get that article that says getting started on prayer mm -hmm. and there you'll find about 14 15 little spontaneous prayers I use them all the time like push back the foreboding or Lord make some good come out of this cross for me for others for the church or Lord I give up you take care of it you know I have uh, all these things and they're really good because they're like one-line prayers they're very easy to remember you can repeat them ten times and you can feel the lightness returning to your heart when you start turning things over to the Lord and uh, you know the contemplative prayer is also important so you, you you know it's not just reading the breviary for me the rosary has always been my consolation uh, because Mary um, for whatever reason is my consolation she's just been my mother through it all mm -hmm. and so I do say the rosary so the, the breviary I of course now have to listen to it um, you know through uh, uh, one of the apps but um, basically now I can just go and do a rosary afterwards and I'm telling you that rosary just connecting with the Blessed Virgin Mary just seeing her face of peace her face of serenity and joy her face right she's the the mother of all of us priests mm -hmm. she really rejoices in in your priesthood all you got to do is connect with her by saying those Hail Marys and see the repetition of the Hail Marys is just a reconnection right mm -hmm. you know how distracted we get and everything else is when you repeat those Hail Marys you're reconnecting with her with her peace her joy in you and she just is such a supportive mother uh, it's been you know everything that St. John Paul uh, the saying says is absolutely right and Fulton J. Sheen says absolutely right about how Mary uh, supports the priesthood right. I remember you know in his you know he gave these talks on his priesthood you know called yeah. called and chosen and in one of uh, the talks he says you know I I was just giving a, a, a series of talks to these um, uh, I think it was Trappists over mm -hmm. in Monastery XYZ and there were 200 guys gathered there and he says you know never before in all my life have I had have I seen 200 men who are, have fallen totally in love with one woman mm -hmm. and of course it's our Blessed Virgin Mary and it's so true uh, you know she truly is a support so that's my uh, recommendation right. on the prayer level and on the you know just the other uh, level of you know when people are busting your chops right besides those spontaneous prayers uh, frankly, I just turn it over to God. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, the, what, you know, you can replay that tape and get really discouraged for standing up for what you think is a good right. thing for that person or the culture or whatever, and or you just get overworked, you know. And priests, diocesan priests, I know some of these guys are doing four masses, you know, on a, a Saturday and a Sunday, and they're just burnt out practically after the weekend and you know then there's the confession then put right. some marriages on top of it and everything else I know what you're thinking you know is I you know how long can I take this well yeah. you can always take it because you would take it for your kids if you were married and and so forth you take it for your kids well this you have your spiritual children 
these people who you know you're saying measure they're your kids they're your spiritual children they're dependent on you in so many ways and so you know just take it for them you know i mean i i don't mind exhaustion anymore i really don't i go to bed peaceful uh even if i'm just you know made all the effort you can doing the best you can which is what yeah you're asked yeah. to do. And, and remember, as, as, yeah. as one person once told me a long time ago, they said, there's no pleasing the people of God. So mm-hmm. you have to give yourself a break, too. We're going to take a break <laughs> here. Much yeah. more ahead with Father Spitzer in a special uh, question and answer program. Stay with us. Thank you for staying with us for the part two of a special program as we answer viewers' questions from our email uh, file server, which we have to empty off every once in a while. Here's another one, uh, Father Spitzer. I understand that because of the Immaculate Conception, we were just talking about Mary, Mary was pure and provided a fitting womb for Jesus to be incarnated. But why then would it not be necessary for Mary's parents to have been immaculately conceived to preserve Mary's purity? This is Jim. Well, actually, I think there's a variety of uh, uh, different reasons for why uh, Mary was to be immaculately conceived, uh, but it wasn't just uh, for the, the, the sake of purity in sort of a, uh, you know, a mechanical, ontological sense. It's that if Mary is freed from concupiscence, right, that is to say that tendency to move toward sin, to move toward egocentricity and sensuality, then when she raises Jesus, she raises him in the most perfect way possible. Does that mean that Mary's parents have to be freed from concupiscence? No. Uh, No necessity whatsoever. Um, When Mary's freed from that concupiscence, even though uh, she may be raised by, uh, you know, imperfect parents, if I can put it that way, Mm. she is still very, very capable of, uh, of communicating uh, the purity of what she is uh, thinking and saying in that absence of concupiscence to her son. Okay. So it's only necessary for one generation. Otherwise, you're going to have yeah, to. Yeah, right. You're um, going to be going go back, back to the, you know, <laughs> the Adam and Eve regress. Yeah, exactly. All right. Next up, dear Father Spitzer, yeah. some Protestants say that baptism by immersion is the only quote-unquote acceptable form of baptism. As a Catholic, how do I respond to that, Andrew? There's not a single biblical um, uh, line that would uh, make you think that. Mm -hmm. There is no biblical witness, and there's nothing from the traditional witness within the Catholic Church that ever had such a restriction. Um, I would just say, well, that's a restriction in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. It didn't come from Jesus through Scripture. It didn't come from Jesus through tradition. Uh, so wherever it came from, uh, we don't know about it, and you're not responsible for following it. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what I'd say, and I'd say right. Catholic Church doesn't believe that that's the case and, and has from almost its inception uh, baptized people 
uh, with the uh, non-immersion uh, techniques, and you mm -hmm. can uh, see that in the history of the church. Right. So this is something that uh, was sort of super added mm -hmm. uh, outside of the scriptural and traditional liturgical context. Do you think that comes from the John the Baptist and Jesus in the river and kind of the impression then that there was this immersion? Oh yeah, well that John certainly uh, bapti baptized Jesus through an immersion mm -hmm. technique, but that doesn't mean, it doesn't follow at all that that's the technique that has to be used for baptism going forward. Right. Uh, all that is required is that you know the the means of baptism, namely water, and the formula of of, of baptism, uh, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, is 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 followed, um, you know, as simply prescribed. Uh, you don't even need a specific minister of baptism if you have a, a moment where you know you have an emergency or right. something of that nature. Uh, you could actually uh, go ahead and right. uh, baptize okay. as an extraordinary minister. Uh, if you are a layperson. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's question uh, coming up, and this one was a boomerang. I knew that we, we knew we'd be getting this one after answering this uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Dear Father Spitzer, on a recent show, you said uh, yoga was okay as long as one was not uh, honoring yeah. or offering it to other spirits. However, I've read yoga is designed so that different positions that are used are the way the gods are honored whether the person does it, knowing it or not, with this information, uh, yoga is not good for Catholics. Pamela. Well, Pamela, as I, I think I said before, if, if uh, uh, it may be designed to give honor to some gods, but if you don't know it, you don't intend it, and you don't want it, you have nothing to worry about. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I could inadvertently be taking a position right now, sitting here on this television, that was designed by some sect somewhere in the world uh, to, to give honor to various gods. Mm -hmm. Does that mean I'm co-involved in giving honor to those gods when I unknowingly and unintentionally assume such a position here on the show? Of course not. I'm not worshiping those other gods. Worship requires intentionality, and intentionality requires knowledge. If you're doing this without knowledge or intentionality, let's face facts. It just can't be worshiping that God, whether you have that, assume such a position or you don't assume such mm. a position. Now, that's my viewpoint. And I'm sticking to it because if you want to say there can be worship without intentionality, then boy, we're worshiping all kinds of things all the time because right. we're imitating all kinds of positions from all kinds of cults all over the world unknowingly and unintentionally. And so, of course, of course, that's not worship. Right. And, and uh, you, you don't want to get into that whole thing of, of uh, you know, some kind of it, like the, the idea of Mormon baptism, you know, I'm, I'm going to get myself baptized for you. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to be, uh, as a result, baptized in the Mormon church because I did it for you without your knowledge and your intention. Right. I mean, let's face facts. This, this is just not right. And uh, so, uh, right. you know, again, I, I just... Of course, if you think that there's something right. uh, to this, and or you if the really person think, who, if you go you know, to some class yeah. like that and they're pushing that, you may say, "Well, this isn't yeah. the right place for me oh, to be." Okay, yeah. You know that certainly that's that would right. be a concern, right? And you know, you would think yeah, even going back, I mean, this might be a, right a stretch, but 
the Olympiad, the gymnasium, the gymnastics from, you know, a lot of that was yeah. all done to honor the gods, as far as I know. Oh, yeah. You know, in the early days. Oh, yeah, you know. sure. And so, yeah. So yeah, you could Paul say the says, same thing. Hey, right. meat sacrificed to idols? What yeah. does an idol mean to me? Nothing. Right. You know? So, but, you know, I'm not going to eat the meat in front of people right. who think it means something. Right. You know, but, you know, to me, it's, it's right. meaningless. Right. So, you know, the. It just, just seems like at to, times. Uh, the, there seems like there's a lot bigger yeah. issues sometimes in the church that, that we've got to be careful that we're not. What did the expression used to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of uh, straining at gnats and swallowing camels, that's the expression? Well, that's it. With you know. all the things that are going on culturally, right. with, you know, uh, with, uh, from abortion to euthanasia to all the, you know, undermining of any right. kind of appropriate sexual ethic to just the, 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 <laughs> the enormous increases uh, you know, in, in uh, uh, behaviors that are just pressing the suicide rates, the, the, you know, the reinforcement of egocentricity to the max and narcissism to the max through the social media. And we're worried about stretching exercises that are done mm -hmm. unintentionally and unknowingly. No, uh, you know, right. there, there's other things to, to worry about. about. So okay. I'm sorry if, if, if the yoga issue is offensive to you, but I, I just don't want to say there's a sin when there's not right. one. And you just got to be careful of, uh, of, of these kind of semi-New Age practices that they, they don't impact yeah. your faith perspective. Absolutely. And as a, as a Catholic That's who's right. informed, you're, you need to be informed so you can yeah. participate in the world without having to worry about being conned by the, this kind of New Age stuff. Uh, dear Father Spencer, Absolutely. On, on a, and that's an right, important on a, caveat. On a recent show, you mentioned that our Lord only had one sex chromosome an X chromosome inherited from his blessed mother. He did not have a sex chromosome inherited from his heavenly father. You also stated that his blood type is AB. How can that be since his heavenly father would not have contributed yeah. a blood type and he would therefore have either A or B blood type rather than an AB blood type, Ernest? Uh, no, that's a good point, Ernest, because as I said, I think I said in the same program, mm. uh, God could easily give an entire, um, you know, fatherly genetic uh, profile, uh, you know, to the uh, to the son, and could he uh, disguise that, uh, you know, um, in uh, in uh, a genetic test uh, in the Eucharistic miracle? I think it's perfectly plausible. So, uh, but you got a good point, mm -hmm. and um, you know, but I do think God can definitely make the male contribution. Mm -hmm. uh, because I don't think uh, Joseph is the real uh, male uh, father of uh, Jesus. And so he's got to get that male contribution, uh, that Y chromosome. He's going to have to get it from another source. And my thought is, why not a divine source? Right. Hey, if God can incarnate the divine personhood uh, into a human being, uh, why can't he give uh, a, you know, the male configuration of, uh, of uh, Jesus's uh, uh, chromosomal structure. Mm -hmm. I mean, his genetic structure. Why right. not? Right. I mean, I don't have any problem with that. So, uh, so uh, I don't. You know, I, you know, I just know he didn't and, get it from uh, Joseph. Right, and uh, certainly the early yeah. church didn't, because so, they didn't know anything about it, and they certainly weren't sitting around, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> trying to figure That's that right. part out. Uh, so, again, yep. uh, dear, oh, this actually goes yeah. to me. Uh, 
Dear Doug, as I was watching huh? Father Spitzer's universe, uh-oh, Father, I became very concerned about oh, Father God. Spitzer's seeming endorsement of the theory of evolution. I really believe that you should be having at least equal time devoted to the idea of quote, intelligent design, which scientifically demolishes the theory of evolution. So many of our youth believe that science disproves religion, so they need to hear how science proves the existence of God, which I think you're 100% behind. Thanks for all your good EWTN programming, Edward. So how can we lead you back to the path of truth here, Father? Well, well, here's the, 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 the following thing. Evolution does not have anything to do with disproving God. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with disproving God's creative power involved. As I have explained multiple times, you can't explain the, the human soul, which I've tried to show is so easily evidenced, not only in near-death experiences, but in medical studies of terminal lucidity and in, in uh, uh, also uh, uh, hydrocephalic patients' intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. The human soul is easily seen. The human soul is a transphysical entity. And as transphysical, it will have to have a transphysical cause. So evolution can't possibly explain um, you know, uh, uh, the arrival of the soul, as I said, 60,000 years ago. So that's the first thing that's really important to note. Number two, if I'm going down because of my own thinking on evolution here, you got to take St. John Paul II down with you mm -hmm. because in his allocution and his letter to the Papal Academy of Sciences, he accords it not only as a hypothesis but as a theory which has substantial evidential basis. So you're going to take you, me down, take him down too, and everybody else. Of course, John, St. John Paul believes in God and believes that you can prove the existence of God because evolution doesn't have anything to do with whether or not the human soul was created, whether human beings were created uh, 60,000 years ago, etc. So that is really a confusion mm -hmm. about what uh, evolution does. Number three. You, you know, you can't ignore the significant evidence for evolution that is out there. This is what St. John Paul is saying, is there is a huge amount of evidence uh, for evolutionary theory. Uh, the evidence, you know, is genetic evidence, biochemical evidence, fossil evidence. I mean, when you put it all together, it is, uh, you know, you can see, uh, you know, evolution um, and, and it's, and it's uh, um, uh, evidential warrant, mm -hmm. you can see that very, very clearly. And, and as far as I'm concerned, I've, I've explained my theory, right. uh, you know, before. I, I do think human ancestors, <clears throat> you know, came from, uh, you know, uh, uh, other hominids, um, you know, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, etc., mm -hmm. coming up to Homo sapiens and Homo sapiens sapiens. I think that's that's clearly the case. I think, though, that only Homo sapiens sapiens <clears throat> had um, a soul. I think uh, that soul was given to our ancestors uh, 60,000 years ago, more or less, 50 to 60,000 years ago. And I think, on top of uh, all of that, I think for about 140,000 years, uh, um, Y chromosome Adam our common male genetic ancestor for all men, and um, mitochondrial Eve, the common ancestor of every human being, 
uh, whose mitochondrial DNA we carry around with us to this very day. I think they were they came around 200,000 years ago. I think there's significant evidence for that. I think that. Uh, as I said, I don't think there was a soul for 140,000 years. Then 60,000 years ago, all of a sudden, you've got human beings creating not just mathematics, but numbering sticks, complex mon uh, um, uh, numbering sticks that calculate and, and help to multiply, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. I, all of a sudden, you've got homo mathematicus. And prior to that time, nothing, no counting sticks, no evidence of any kind of mathematical uh, you know, acumen whatsoever. Then suddenly you've got religious acumen. People start burying, uh, human beings start burying um, uh, their, their um, loved ones, their dead loved ones, uh, with grave goods. And the grave goods have all kinds of things for an eternal journey. Not even the Neanderthals buried their, their, uh, their uh, uh, they buried their, their deceased um, loved ones, but they didn't put grave goods in that would be good for an eternal journey. They didn't have any icons of gods, fertility goddesses, mm -hmm. lion goddess, gods, you know, to, to help protect them along the way, et cetera, et cetera. It's homo religiosa, suddenly, boom, same time. Uh, as I said, Berwick and Chomsky wrote this incredible book, uh, Why Only Us, showing that about 60, 70,000 years ago, suddenly you have human linguistics, mm -hmm. which are what, what they are going to call hierarchically organized uh, linguistic structures that have not mm -hmm. ever been imitated by any physical process, by any Nim Chimskis. They might be able to learn 120 words in artificial uh, you know, sign language, but uh, in uh, American Sign Language, but for sure mm -hmm. they do not have hierarchical structures sufficient to doing syntactical things. Suddenly then syntactical language abstraction of, uh, of concepts, uh, conceptual ideas, mathematical ideas, uh, you know, new forms of geometry and architecture, and then, of course, this incredible migration <clears throat> out of Africa it just booms up into Europe and into uh, Asia, mm -hmm. goes across the Arctic clam bridge, goes all the way down to the tip of South America. All this stuff happened 60,000 years ago uh, by accident. I should say not. Mm -hmm. There is a transcendent kind of intelligence, an abstract conceptual intelligence, a religious acumen, an aesthetic intelligence. Suddenly we have cave painting 60,000 years ago. We got jewelry that's painted 60,000 years ago. We got, you know, aesthetics and, you know, auditory aesthetics and music, mm -hmm. right? We got bone flutes and all kinds of things. And 60,000 years ago, what happened? We're totally mm -hmm. different, adventurous beings. And our technologies are so proficient. We developed such good weapons, such, good, you know, well done boats to go across the water. Et cetera, et cetera, all of these various things, mm -hmm. suddenly uh, we become a totally, totally different uh, species. We're not just Homo sapiens sapiens, we're Homo sapiens sapiens with a soul. And that soul, right. given to us by God, the only transphysical cause that could do it, that soul, I believe, is what makes us to be who we are. For 140,000 years, our genetic ancestors were basically hacking coconuts and, and, and nuts, right. uh, you know, on the border of Namibia and Angola and doing nothing. But wow. is there evidence for evolution? There certainly is. If I'm going down, St. John Paul II is going down, Pope Benedict is going down, we're all going down together. Okay. The evidence, I think, is overwhelming, Do you think there, and it certainly doesn't contradict God. Do you think sometimes God. there's confusion because people hear this, this expression, intelligent design? Of course there's intelligent design in the sense that the universe 
comes mm -hmm. from God, so it's intelligently designed. Yeah. So what? But yes. it seems to me that people think if God used evolution, that means somehow it was totally random. Yeah, no, absolutely. There is a kind of evolutionary theory. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I see where he's coming from. Mm -hmm. There is a kind of evolutionary theory um, that is purely materialistic. In other words, it doesn't admit of any d um, divine or uh, godly design, and it doesn't uh, admit of any transphysical soul that differentiates animals from human beings. Mm -hmm. Now that kind of purely uh, is called uh, materialistic neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory. Mm -hmm. But even atheists like Thomas Nagel can you know, say, hey look, you know, the neo-Darwinian materialistic view of evolution is almost certainly wrong mm -hmm. because it cannot possibly explain how you can have so much evolution that takes place uh, <clears throat> over you know, um, a uh, uh, let's say a 200,000 year period, let alone, mm -hmm. you know, a 4 uh, billion year period, uh, which is the Earth, uh, you know, 4.6 billion years, the Earth's lifespan. So if you, you look at that uh, seriously, there's just no way. There's just too many things, um, too many steps uh, of progress that have been taken place. And, you know, just even over 4.6 billion years doesn't even account for less than 1% of all the steps that have been taken in genetic lineage. And because when you see this, you're gonna to have to say, no, there's gotta be some kind of designing agent that is present or um, as you know, uh, people who are uh, Christ, uh, Christians like Francis Collins, who's head of the Genome Project mm. there, who's a very fine Christian, uh, he basically says, look, God front-loaded these laws uh, even laws of biology into the universe right at the Big Bang, so at the unfolding, uh, you would have what's called biological and genetic schemes of recurrence, uh, which become what we today call our biological operators and laws, like you know, those governing metabolism and, and, and uh, you know, replication of cells and so forth and so on, all the way up to higher laws of biology. But all of these things, you know, uh, taken uh, <coughs> together mm -hmm. <coughs> manifest a need for some form of, um, of design uh, at, at least at the very beginning and, and that's called nomogenesis if God front loads all the design into the universe at the beginning and it's called orthogenesis mm -hmm. if God is like a final cause like an omega point or something mm -hmm. that's drawing uh, you know, um, uh, biological operators uh, to their uh, fulfillment and fruition uh, as like, you know, something standing at the end, drawing it forward into progress. Uh, guys like Michael Polanyi sort of held both. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a very famous chemist and philosopher um, who, uh, you know, certainly contributed uh, to both nomo and, and orthogenesis. Well, we, we've evolved uh, throughout the hour to have the program end. And so with that, Father, you're going to have to give us your wow. blessing on the way out the door. Oh, I must have bloviated a whole lot. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> please bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord who has designed you has fearfully and wonderfully made you and created you send his Holy Spirit down upon you to inspire and engage your soul to pursue the highest dimensions of love and truth 
and goodness and beauty and being. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, uh, Father, for uh, taking on those battery of questions. And of course, be well <laughs> until we see you next time. And don't forget that, of course, Father Spitzer's right. books and DVDs are always available through our EWTN Religious Catalog. You can go to our on-demand page to see the shows we post. And the moral wisdom of the Catholic Church is our topic from his wonderful book. You can pick that up through catalog, and that'll be our topic next week. And don't forget to join me each week on EW10's Bookmark with another exciting author this Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Check out EW10.com. And, of course, Father Spitzer's Universe, as I said, is available on demand. But also EW10's Podcast Central. Go to EW10.com forward slash radio and click on podcast. You can listen to Mother Angelica, Father Spitzer, all your other favorite programs. If you want all our live shows, they're all there, and including video podcasts as well that we have on there. And some of the best of the rest that we don't even produce, but it's a great place to go. Podcast Central, it's all central to our Catholic teaching here in Father Spitzer's universe. We'll see you next time, thanks.